This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Today, we have the privilege of bringing you Rachel's story. Her integrity and desire for the church to truly resemble God's kingdom shines brightly as she details both the spiritual abuse and racial trauma that she experienced during her time at her church in Kansas City. This episode is a little different in the fact that we have chosen to name the church due to this being the third completely unrelated story out of that congregation that has now been featured on this podcast. Our hope is that Shining Light will give another opportunity to leadership to embrace humility, repentance, and true reconciliation. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. All right. We want to welcome Rachel to the podcast today, and we are so honored and excited to share her story. She's going to be sharing a story about her time at an Acts 29 church uh, in Kansas City so that we can kind of coordinate or collaborate on this. Um, This is the same church that we've featured with uh, Elizabeth and with Lindsay's story. So, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are excited to talk with you and hear about your story. So I want to start with, how long were you at this church? So I came to Redeemer. It was the very first Sunday I was there. was the last Sunday in February of 2017. I had left my previous church which ironically, for similar reasons, that I ultimately left Redeemer. But the sad thing is, with my previous church was the church that I came to faith in. And I was there for two years and then left. And so there's this period or this period of time that I was without a church home. Like I wanted to find a new church, but I wasn't, I didn't want to jump into that process too quickly. And I hate church hopping. I absolutely hate it. And so a friend of mine who was at Redeemer, she'd been at Redeemer by that time about a year, maybe a little bit more. She's like, hey, why don't you come to Redeemer? Check it out. If you don't like it, that's fine. You know, you can find another church, continue on your hunt. So I did. I came and I was like, okay, I'm going to give it, I said six weeks. And in six weeks, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to reluctantly start my search again. And yeah, six weeks turned into like four years, about four and a half at the end of the day. Yeah. I I mean, first off, I'm sorry, because I do know that you are not there any longer. And that's a long, substantial amount of time to commit your life to a space. But also, I know that you didn't just attend, you actually kind of buckled down and started serving and helping and got involved in some ministry. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about where you served and what that space was like for you, how you got into that, you know? So when I initially came to Redeemer, I, and I kind of made the decision of, okay, I'm going to stay here. I was a little reluctant to kind of like dive right into serving because at my old church, I got saved 
in March of 2015. I got baptized in May of that same year. And I just dove right in to serving. And I wanted to kind of give myself some time to think about, oh, like, where do I want to be here? Where do I want to plug in here? I just don't want to dive headfirst. So Redeemer doesn't or didn't, and to my knowledge still doesn't, have a very extensive like ministry ministry teams at my old church. I mean, there are ministry teams for like literally everything. If you could think it, there is a ministry team for it. But Redeemer didn't really have that. And so I re- initially wanted to be a part of the women's ministry because that's where I was heavily involved and plugged in at my old church. But there wasn't really a presence or really much of a women's ministry. Meaning that there wasn't, I couldn't say like, hey, this is the head of the women's ministry. I'm going to be on this team and serve there because there really wasn't a women's ministry. And I'm not the kind of person who is going to, I guess, submit to people's expectations of like, oh, you're a woman, you're going to serve in kids' ministry. No shade, no tea to anyone who is serving in kids' ministry. And that is not where I'm supposed to be. Like, I know people thrive and we need, we need people to be in kids' ministry. We do. We need them. That is not where I'm supposed to be. And so I thought, <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know what to do then. So the family's pastor, who I actually came to know through a friend, was like, hey, why don't you be a part of student ministry? And I was like, mm, no. <laughs> like, um, isn't that just kids ministry graduated? Yes. Up, like a couple, of, <laughs> it's the kids ministry. I'm like, no, I have zero experience. Like young, I have zero experience with young kids. Like I have a niece. And at the time she was like four. I'm like, that's, that's my limited experience with children. I don't have any. And at the time, like my husband and I were dating at this point when I was first approached by the family's pastor. They start student ministry at sixth grade. So that's 12. I'm like, I don't know 12 year old girls. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, that's fine. Think about it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to think about it. And I'm saying no. So a couple of months pass. He's like, hey, about student ministry. And I'm like, no, not doing that. He's like, hear me out. Come to lunch with like the friend that inter- like kind of introduced us. He's like, hey, I want to take you to lunch. And I also want to take our, you know, the mutual friend to lunch. Just hear me out. Hear me out. Hear us out. At the end of this lunch, if you're like, no, I still don't want to do it, then that's fine. So I go to lunch with him. And at this point, we're, I think it's like summer of 2018. His friend and I are at lunch and he's giving me this whole spiel about student ministry. At the end of it, he's like, hey, take some time, think about it. No, you know, no rush. But the student ministry, um, like a leader retreat was August of 2018. So I had a couple of weeks before I had to make like a, an actual decision. So I talked to my husband, who was my fiance at the time, and I'm like, do you really even see me in student ministry? I don't, I don't even know what I have to offer these girls. I mean, I was a 12-year-old girl once, like I know what that, what that is, what that's like, but I was, I was never a 12-year-old girl in youth ministry. I don't know what that was like. I grew up Catholic. And so like, I don't know, I don't know what that's like. And I also feel this really huge and grave responsibility kind of like even like discipling these girls and having an influence on like their spiritual formation that just really felt very very heavy to me and like not saying anything wrong or like leading them like a wrong way like or answering questions which apparently with 12 year old girls or even like 12 year old kids in general you know I heard stories some of the other leaders were like yeah I've gotten some wild questions (laughs) and some really weird scenarios and so he's like, hey, like, just like pray about it. That's where you're supposed to be. Maybe, you know, the Lord wants you to be in a place you never thought you'd be in. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. So I did. I took some time. I thought about it, prayed about it. And I, I told him, like, all right, I'm in. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm in. 
He's like, great. So see you, <laughs> you know, leader retreat this summer. See you there. And that's where I met my co-lead. And we kind of formulated this plan together because it was her first year leading. Her husband actually had been in student ministry for quite some time. So he was already kind of used to the, the flow of everything. But it was our first time leading in student ministry together and just in general. I remember the first night, like the official night of all the kids were were there, we're doing our introductions and, you know, just getting to know all the girls. I was so overwhelmed. We had like 10 girls or maybe even more, like 10 to 12 girls. And I'm just like, what are we going to do? <laughs> How are we going to lead them? What is this going to look like? And it turned into literally one of the best experiences I've had in ministry unexpectedly, honestly, because I was not prepared. But even with, you know, I had an amazing co-lead. We worked very well together. And the Lord was very kind and gracious to me. Like, even though I had no idea what to say to these girls, how to lead them, I didn't really have to think about that too much. That makes any sense. I was just honest with them and I'm like, hey, this is kind of where I was when I was your age. Or, you know, if they asked for advice or like things that were happening through school or I just tried to be honest and also like lead them in a way that was like loving and lead them to Jesus and show them Jesus in a way that was authentic, you know, to me and was real. Because I feel like kids can really you know, detect BS. <laughs> They're BS detectors. And so I'm like, eh, I don't want to treat you. I mean, you're a kid, like you're 12 years old, but I'm not going to treat you like you're four. And so that was really important to me. And student ministry, like again, like I said, it was honestly one of the best experiences in ministry I've had since becoming a Christian. So, yeah. And kids really, I mean, they they relate to that when someone's straight with them and, and just honestly just re- tries to essentially not sugarcoat things or has a real life conversation with them. They relate, they relate to that. They respect yeah. that and they, they build trust in you uh, that builds trust with them. And then they tr- start to trust you and they share more. So I think that's like, great. You mentioned in your story too, that I, I think it's a, I think I want to emphasize this, the family's pastor that you, you really did feel supported by that individual your entire time there. Is that a fair statement? Oh, like definitely. I think one of the things that I noticed about being at Redeemer the first time I was there, like, oh, this is a pretty white church. I knew that going in. And as a person of color who's very used to being in white spaces in all aspects of my life, I wasn't, I mean, I was used to it. Even at my, the first church that I ever went to, the first church that I you know, came to faith in was mostly, was a mostly white church. And so I knew that going in and you kind of like, well, when you're used to that environment, you know, you know how to navigate it. And so coming to Redeemer, I was given the impression, especially by my husband, because he had been there since like 2008, 2009. Yeah. I was given the impression that while Redeemer wasn't the, I guess, most for lack of a better term, like progressive as far as like issues with like how race in the gospel intersect and, you know, how we can answer those questions um, through the lens of the gospel um, and racial reconciliation. Like they were on board with having those discussions. They were kind of turning a page from at that point, he'd been there for like eight, eight years. He's like, the pages, you know, we're kind of turning the page. It hasn't always been that way, but that's the direction that we're going. And going to student ministry, because our, I guess, the makeup of the kids that were there was very diverse, especially the first year uh, that I was in student ministry. Family's pastor was very intentional with the things that we talked about and discussed as leaders and how we can better understand and like better lead our kids, we have to understand the things that impact their lives in the you know on the daily. We started reading books and having book discussions. The very first book that we read the year that I was 
in student ministry was Wide Awake. Obviously, that book isn't for me, <laughs> but with me, and there was like one other Black student leader. She was female, and we were the only two. Um, she was in her last year. Like her girls were seniors, so that was her last year of leading. And so we read Wide Awake. We were having discussions. Like our very first discussion was at um, our student leader retreat, our leader retreat that year. And then we were reading books like Prophetic Lament and reading Jamar Tisby and having those discussions on what it meant to, again, like I said, to see our kids and how their lives are affected by the way that we see them. And when I say we, how the church sees them and reacts to them. And Redeemer in particular, I think, wasn't prepared for those discussions at the larger church context because they didn't happen. But student ministry is just like, was this microcosm kind of insulated community that, I mean, we have those conversations regularly. I mean, they should be happening, obviously, and not just for the dynamic and the makeup of what our kids looked like, but because it just to be happening in general. And the location, I didn't, men- I didn't mention this in the beginning, but I was at the Midtown location, which for people listening, if you're from Kansas City, it was in like in Midtown, like on 39th Street, 39th and Main. So if you're familiar with the area of what 39th and Main like looks like, you would think that this need to be more aware and also to be more, um, to have the onus of understanding what the community looks like and how the people in the community are viewed, especially by members of a church. It's like literally like smack dab in the middle of this community. You would think those conversations were happening at large, but they weren't. But the family's pastor, who is the head of student ministry, I mean, he wasn't afraid of having those conversations. And I really appreciated that. And I thought in the beginning, hey, if this is if this is happening in student ministry, I'm okay with that. I wasn't too much, not that I wasn't concerned that they weren't happening at the larger scale, but it was kind of like, well, they're happening here, so that's okay. And hopefully those discussions can kind of bleed out or trickle down or however yeah. to the larger church content, which never happened. <laughs> Unfortunately. Mm, so sorry. Yeah. Gosh. What like before we move a little deeper into your story, because clearly there's more to this story uh, yeah. beyond <laughs> just this. Unfortunately, I just want to point out the integrity in you as a leader to like be cautious of even stepping into the role that you stepped into. One as a parent, but also as somebody who now hosts a podcast where I have I'm consistently confronted with people that are in roles of spiritual authority that are not careful or wise about making that step and are not thoughtful. Hearing you say that is just one redemptive, but also so beautiful to hear. Like you had so much integrity. I just want to thank you for that. And I appreciate it. I think with that, with this explanation that you've given of student ministries and the area you're in, would you mind just like explicitly saying what the general community does look like there and what is the demographic of that area? Yeah. And what was that like in contradiction to what the church demographic was? I think that would be helpful going into this next part because I want to start talking about like that phrase that they started using Mm -hmm. as they're like, we're going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like Redeemer Midtown located, well, it's technically the street is Baltimore, but intersection of 39th Street and Main in Kansas City, which is Midtown. Again, if you're familiar with Kansas City, Missouri. We're on the Missouri side to probably say that too, because mm-hmm. that does make a difference. <laughs> yeah. So we're in Midtown and like literally Redeemer is, it's really almost strange because this Redeemer is kind of in the center and right behind Redeemer is section, section eight housing, like affordable like section eight housing, like kind of on, actually it's kind of on the front side. Backside is a CVS across the street more apartments. The Salvation Army is literally on on Main Street in an area that 
is mostly black and also brown. I believe because my brother-in-law is from Kansas City also, but he's he's Mexican. And he's like, yeah, like back in the day, like this area used to be like mostly like Hispanic and Latine. And he's like, it's been wildly gentrified. Yeah. And continues to be more gentrified even as the years go by. And so it's really strange when you like drive around the area. And which is why I was surprised when I came with that first Sunday to Redeemer because I saw where it was located. And I'm like, oh, like I know this area. Like I know I've seen the demographic of people. And when you're walking into the church and you're like, how is it possible that almost everyone in here is white? Yeah. And the community does not at all reflect the demographic of the church. For a church that literally has been here, like it used to be like a Baptist church. And that church essentially kind of died off. And they gave the building to Redeemer in 2008. So they took over the building. And so I'm not sure what the demographic was of the Baptist church. I'm assuming it looked more like the makeup of the community. But when I got to Redeemer, I mean, there was, of course, like there are people of color kind of sprinkled in and peppered in. I went to the evening services. They had two evening services at the time, five and the seven. Um, I cannot be bothered to wake up early on a <laughs> Sunday. Um, <laughs> and I lived within walking distance of Redeemer. And so I always went to the five or the seven, which was like kind of like a... I'd say I'm 36. So and at the time I was 20. No, I was 31. And so there were just like more like like younger like couples, younger families, not a lot of kids at the five and the seven on a Sunday, which makes sense. The, the kind of the younger crowd, like around my age, maybe a little bit younger, you got a little slightly more diverse, but the church is the whole not so much. That's super helpful perspective to for our listeners to hear because that's actually something that we hear a lot and it's quite common within the Acts 29 planting network is this whole like we're for the city, like we're getting in there and like we're going to be a part of the community, but they're just like planting little like very white clones of each other yeah. uh i don't know how no, that's right that's the only we're for like the city but we don't represent IPA the city jeans. in our in our makeup yeah. yeah skinny jeans which nothing against that i love me a pair of skinny jeans <laughs> me but, you know like <laughs> there you go you know like i think everybody can already yeah. picture what it looks like yeah. which is kind of wild like how is that even that's that's kind of wild if we can all just close our eyes and be like yep we know what it looked like especially just being in the context. And also, I know in Elizabeth's episode, she mentioned this, but there's like historical weight to where that church is located, yeah. right? Like there's like a lot of historical things that have happened there, especially for... From like a civil rights movement perspective. Yeah. 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 So it's just like kind of upside down, confusing I feel like that's helpful perspective for people as they're listening to it, maybe. Yeah. And I think also, like, just to add in that, at that time in 2017, like, the next year was Redeemer's 10-year anniversary. To think that in 10 years, the church still looks the same and that people in the community didn't feel comfortable enough to come to Redeemer or to call Redeemer their church home that says something, that in 10 years, the makeup of the church still looks the way it did when the church was started, with the exception of outliers, like myself and other friends, that really should say something. And I don't want people to, the, the common, I guess, answer to that question or statement is, well, How's it their fault? How are they supposed to, you know, attract, I hate that word, but for lack of a better <laughs> word, attract, yeah. you know, other people of color in the community? Like, how are we supposed to do that? Well, listen to people, people of color who are in your communities who are going to this church who are telling you, oh, this is what you should be doing or take it upon yourself to 
educate, to listen, to humble yourself and say like, hey, these are things that we don't we don't know and that's okay. But we're moving towards this. We're stepping towards this, even if it's uncomfortable, but no one was willing to do that. And so it's like you can't it's like you can't expect people to come into this church and to be comfortable with a majority white church and even tell their friends like, oh, yeah, come to Redeemer. Like you're going to be like the only like black person in a service, literally, and send your kids. Your kids will be safe in student ministry if they're old enough. But if they're not, then you're going to Redeemer Kids with teachers and other people in leadership who are not equipped to care for them in a way that's like loving to where their parents would be okay with even staying long enough for their kids to matriculate to student ministry. Why was your student ministries demographic different than the church at large? Would you say, were you getting like students in that were feeling safe? Do you, I mean, yeah, I, I'm hearing you say like as leaders, you guys are pressing into this. You're trying to like actively create a space that will love the diverse kingdom of God well, mm-hmm. regardless of your skin color or income level, you know, all of those things. Like it seemed like you guys were actually educating yourselves and actually passionately pursuing this. So we had a lot of kids. Well, there I think there are two reasons for that. One, we had kids who went to school with other kids who would invite their friends to student ministry, but they didn't go to, like their families didn't go to Redeemer. Also to transracial adoptions. And I think that's a whole other discussion of transracial adoptions and I think how, you know, I think Redeemer looked at adoption and fostering and all of that, but particularly like that's, that's what happened. Like we had a lot of kids like invite their friends to student ministry to be a part of student ministry, but again, like their families didn't go to Redeemer and they never did. (laughs) And that was the thing, like how, like your kids are coming like every Wednesday night, like to this church to be like, you know, because it's like, oh, my friends come. My friends are going. I want to go too. That's just what it was. Like there wasn't, I didn't see families, these families coming to and coming to Redeemer, being involved, serving, being in any sort of ministries, like at all. It was very much kind of like an after school program in a way. And because their families didn't go to Redeemer, there wasn't the demographic of more diverse families in the larger church context. Yeah, that's that's super, super helpful. Yeah, Thanks. that's very helpful. All right, I want to get into my favorite term from Rachel's story that I don't know what it means, and I hope she can explain <laughs> oh, it to me. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm expecting like an going. amazing answer here. So what, <laughs> like it's going to blow me away. What is multicultural normativity? Oh, oh, wow. So, when I first heard that term in a sermon that was preached, I didn't know what it was either. And so, I asked my husband, who, again, has been at Redeemer a lot longer than me. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what what is that? Like, is that just a term is is this like a term, but also like a focused effort to answer, you know, oh, what are we doing about racial reconciliation in our church and in the community? Like, what is it? And so he really did know, <laughs> even as a person, as a Black person, another Black person being at Redeemer, he didn't even know what it was. It became a Redeemer buzzword. And for anyone who is listening who's ever been to Redeemer at all or been there, former member, like, you know what I'm talking about when I say a Redeemer buzzword. That was one of them. And I'd like to think in my own kind of processing, like sussing out what this definition actually means. It's like, okay, the kingdom of God clearly does not look like Redeemer Fellowship, the larger, the church, big C, 
And because of that, when we get to heaven and it's not going to look like Redeemer, while we're here and while we're in community with one another, while we're worshiping together and serving together and like all these things, we are going to strive to not only let like have our body, our church community, like little C, look the way or mirror the way that the larger church global church looks which is very diverse and also to understand how our fellow brothers and sisters in christ who are of color like how they navigate the world how the world sees them and how can we by understanding that better love them and also kind of form our understanding our own and our inherent bias and how that's preventing us from loving them well and understanding them and also repenting from the sin of racism and how that's affected and like permeated our the western church particularly the american church in the united states like how that has been so insidious and how the church has been complicit in upholding white supremacy and racism and misogyny and how we need to collectively repent of that sin and when i say we i mean white people which is true i know i probably lost no no i mean it's no you're a hundred percent accurate and it's true and i think it needs to be said so go ahead yeah and that was your definition of what that it should was be. my definition that's how i came i was like it. that was a very beautiful good definition of something we should be fighting towards what was <laughs> redeemer's <laughs> definition of this because <laughs> i don't think it was the same i don't think it was the same at all redeemer's <laughs> answer to this okay we're going to admit, and I'm using like finger quotes here, we're going to admit that there are some things that we don't know. We're Because we don't know those things, we are going to leave the responsibility of educating or of educating and explaining to the people of color who are in close proximity to us. One of the Black pastors who are on staff, who was on staff of Redeemer, who actually like married my husband and I, him and his wife and his family are friends of ours. He started this race, this series, a series of talks about race and the gospel, which I've, I went to these, like, I guess they were like classes, I guess you could say. They were great. It was great to get the conversation going. It was great to also know that the church like kind of supported him in that endeavor. The problem was I didn't see a lot of the white pastors participating. When I say participating, the one black pastor who I guess his I guess he took this upon himself to kind of like lead to lead this particular like these particular sessions. There wasn't the other side of that which was, "Hey, as a white man, I recognize my bias i recognize there are things that i may not know that i may not inherently think are problematic or racist or even colorblind and what those terms like even mean and i'm actively trying to undo those things and recognize and be aware of those things there wasn't there wasn't any of that it was just him up there you know saying like how like this is why God cares about justice. This is why God cares about, you know, the unarmed black men who are killed, who are murdered by police. Like that's why, this is why God cares. And the proof, the evidence of that can be found in the text, can be found like in the scriptures, which I know to be true. And a lot of other people of color who are believers like know that to be true. But there was, I felt like there were just a lot of white people there who were absorbing, who were just kind of taking in that information, but not really doing anything with it. And then he was just kind of teaching and giving like mini sermons on 
you know, why God cares about justice and why racial reconciliation is biblical and has a biblical standing. But I didn't see a lot of the white male leadership actively participating in that. Were they there? Was any of the white male pastors there? I do remember there were some, but as like time went on, because this didn't last, it by the next year, these classes weren't happening. And when I say next year, like 2018, like these classes weren't happening. And I know for sure, because like, I got married in 2019, like early 2019, like I know for sure they were not happening in 2019 and beyond. So that was, that was, I think, one way I think they were striving towards multicultural normativity. So if the white male leadership is not modeling to their congregation what actively listening and repenting and not centering the white narrative in the church, if they're not modeling what that looks like with these conversations, the white congregation's not going to absorb this. They're not even going to they're not even going to yeah. react to it. They're going to be like, "Oh, that's great. Checkbox and move on." So like right there to me, that's a huge red flag that this multicultural normativity is not a real thing because yeah. that's how you do it. You model it. You model what it looks like for everyone to say we are complicit here. We're wrong. Like, this is what the Bible says, and this is what we've done. Then really sit under a different type of leadership, like you said, for this pastor who is sharing not only truth in the Bible, but I'm sure he's probably sharing personal experience as well. Yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to say that. I apologize for interrupting you, but I thought that was important to oh, say. Oh, no. Like, I a thousand percent agree with what you just said, and also that those discussions didn't go beyond what was discussed in the in those in those classes in that series so there wasn't oh this is an extension on what was preached in a sermon and it, we're going to continue that discussion you know on sunday from the pulpit like someone a white pastor is going to you know speak about what was discussed how the church is going to move forward in that and how more discussions and things are going to be happening based upon, or it's going to be build, being built upon, essentially. There was never any discussions outside of those, you know, I think it was like Saturdays, I want to say, when that series happened. Second, like kind of the second way that I like actually saw with my own two eyeballs that they were trying to lean into multicultural normativity is the minority pastoral residency. So the same Black pastor who started headed those discussions on race and the gospel was the director of the residency program. And so the first year that I got to Redeemer was their first inaugural class. And because Redeemer is an Acts 29 church, they had this, essentially it's a two-year residency program that, you know, guys from all across the country including Kansas City, would apply for. They would move to Kansas City. They would be a part of either our Midtown location or our Johnson County location because we only had, at the time, there were only two. And they would serve and they would be involved and immersed in the community. They're also affiliated with, I think, the Midwest Baptist Temple, Midwestern, yep, the seminary. Yeah. And you would go to seminary also to get an MDiv, and you would essentially, at the end of the two years, with the support of Acts 29, you would go and you would plant churches. It's interesting. When I say interesting, it's like, well, these guys would come. And the first inaugural class, there were two, two guys who were local in Kansas City and one guy who was from D.C. who moved to D.C., from D.C. to Kansas City. And they were all... Two were at our Midtown location. One was at our Johnson County location, which Johnson County, the Johnson County location is like, I mean, like almost exclusively white. Like Midtown was the most diverse. <laughs> and I mean, say that very loosely. Like Johnson County, if you know anything about Kansas City, again, Kansas City geography and where how like where the area Johnson County encompasses, you know what I'm talking about. So the problem... I think, with inviting particularly like men of color to either move to Kansas City to be a part of either church congregation 
and be a part of a community in a church that is a colorblind, b staff clearly has their own in, you know inherent biases, and whose own hiring practices contribute to a cultural whiteness. Essentially, that's a recipe for like racialized trauma. And because the white male leadership is not equipped to see like when they're inflicting and or being the cause of this racialized trauma and because the residency director is himself a black man then has to absorb and take the brunt of like when these instances happen how they're discussed and resolved if any and on the outside it looks great redeemers doing this great thing and i and honestly like i truly believe that the residency is was really like a great program not for redeemer but it was really a great program they just weren't equipped to to steward it honestly in a way that was like affirming to the humanity of these men and their families my husband ultimately did become a part of the residency program. He was a part of like the last class of residence. He started in 2020 and unfortunately didn't get to finish because we left. He actually intentionally went back and talked to some of the guys who were in the residency program because he, when he was applying, he wanted to know like their honest and true opinions. And they named people on staff who were the cause of very inappropriate racist incidents, who said extremely problematic things, situations that weren't handled the best when they were sent to leadership, ways in which the residency wasn't supported in ways that it could have been. I think those guys were severely underpaid for the work that they did. I mean, severely underpaid. And overworked. And there was just a lack of care, ultimately. Of spiritual care, especially for these guys. And so... So it wasn't really valued. No. It was there for the image and not because this was something that was truly a part of their heart as leaders. Yes. I 100% agree with that. And... When my husband was applying for the residency program, and even when he talked to the guys and like knew all that, he's like, I trust, you know, I don't want to say his name because I feel like I don't want to bring him into this, but the director of the program, like, I trust him. And I, we know him, like, you know, him and his wife did our premarital counseling, like, you know, they, he married us, like, we knew him. And I, like, I trust him. I trust that you'll be safe because of him. I know that if anything were to happen, I'm the kind of person that's like, oh, you need me to come up there? <laughs> Do I have to talk to someone? Do we have to have a conversation? Because what's not about to happen is that my husband isn't going to be subjected to racialized violence and trauma and me not say anything. Okay. I know y'all have issues with like opinionated women. <laughs> <laughs> we know that I'm smiling so big <laughs> over here I'm like yes. I know you Bring do the fire. but I don't care because yeah. that's my husband and I'm a black woman married to a black man like I know what he's in for I know what he's up against and like those are the only two tangible things that I ever saw Redeemer actually like working towards multicultural normativity oh my god I guess like it's having so heartbreaking yeah (laughs) and that honestly like in up until we left like that was it and at the time that we left it was just the residency program you know the race in the gospel series was done i'm sure conversations were had in like pockets of communities around redeemer but you know you you made a statement in your story where you said the burden of education fell solely on people of color and i i mean one i thought that was like just heartbreaking to hear that and that there was no onus to take ownership from the white leaders and pastors and staff i mean i don't even know what to say other than that's just devastating it's just devastating 
And yeah. it's completely counter to the gospel, especially what well, I think is more concerning to me, Rachel, is the fact that this was like a push, but the heart behind it was, was not only not that, it was in a way racist, right? There were still things yeah. going on that were very racist and hurtful. Yeah. And like the evil in that is just profound. It's just profound. Yeah. So. Like a hundred percent. Yes. And what's so scary is like this outward appearance that it will be safe if you come. Like what you're talking about. Like, hey, we're actually valuing this program and like pursuing raising up leaders that are not white in churches. And like, it seems on the outside, like, oh, this is a place that actually like wants to do this diverse kingdom that's like multicultural churches. But really what was happening is only if you, only if you assimilate into our culture, your culture cannot affect anything. It's not going to change us. We're not going to care about it. We need you to actually just put our culture on a pedestal and then you need to climb Mm -hmm. up our ladder. And then if we decide you're worthy, we'll give you a title. But if you don't meet those requirements, then sorry, you're going to have to go back to your own, your own church, you know, go, go to your own thing, not in our space because you don't fit in the box. And that's horrifying. And also when I'm thinking through what it looks like for your friend, a black pastor to be up on stage teaching and then having like to actively, I'm just picturing putting together all the pieces with the other stories we've heard out of this church And thinking like, not only is he giving of himself to educate and to fight for open eyes about the realities of where your congregation was at and the country is at, he's having to fight Mm, for his own worth on stage at a church that he's got pastors that aren't even caring enough to come some of the time to him doing that. Like... I'm here standing up here sacrificing myself Mm. to tell you to care about me. That's just so heartbreaking. I'm just, it's devastating. I mean, so far what we've heard too with Rachel, with your story, I mean, you were doing the same thing. I mean, you were sacrificing your worth to say, like, just care about me, care about what I have to say and, and your husband as well. I, I mean, it's just so discouraging. It's so discouraging, but it's also like, I think we just have to sit with that. We have to sit with that and really think about it. And when I mean that, I mean the white church. Like we need to sit with that. We need to sit and really wrestle with why that's happening. Okay, we're about to get into like the meat of a bunch of stuff that goes, Yeah. (laughs) that's gonna get really interesting. Is there anything else you wanna share about multicultural normativity other than it's complete bullshit? Um, I agree. It's 110% bullshit. I also want to add that to really kind of answer this question of like, what is multicultural normativity? How is it applicable? You have to be intersectional. And without that intersectionality, it doesn't work. And so I am a woman. I am also a Black woman. And so my husband, who maneuvers around the world and moves to the world as a Black man, our experiences are shared because we are both Black, but they are different. Fortunately for him, in the setting that we were in, a complementarian, reformed, Acts 29 church, he benefited from being a man and was afforded certain opportunities of leadership and advancement the residency program in general. There was also a spiritual leadership cohort that he was a part of that started that was only offered to men. So he benefited from those systems because he was a man. He was still a black man, and that was obviously comes with a different set of of like challenges in navigating the culture of Redeemer. But he was a man at the end of the day who benefited from those those systems. And as a woman who was subject to not only the racism and bias, I was also subjected to racialized misogyny. And 
they couldn't quite connect or they couldn't quite grasp what it meant, what the intersection of race and gender meant. And I think that's where I was left essentially to fend for myself as a woman. And so, yeah, I just want to make that clear. That's helpful. Yeah. In a needed perspective. Yeah. And it's so layered. And that's why, if we're going to, that's why Redeemer was not a safe place to be hosting any of the sorts. They need to be going to the conferences and learning, but they don't need to be putting them on. Goodness. Oh, gosh. Okay. Now that we have heard a little bit of that backdrop, which is not just any small backdrop, that is a heavily charged nuanced situation that you guys are existing in at Redeemer. (sighs) Everything starts snowballing for you pretty quickly here. I think a lot of the things that were inherently in you, like your, the sense that you had and the questions you were asking and the anxieties that you were carrying with even like the program that your husband was a part of, or this weird buzzword you're hearing around these nights that you're seeing, like not a ton coming from you start like coming face to face firsthand in conversations, seeing yeah. like nobody cares about this. I uh, think it would be really helpful to your story to start moving into what happened with this women's ministry. Yep. <laughs> I'm using air quotes situation because I'm not quite sure what a minute women's ministry actually yeah. looked like in this setting. From what I know, it had had to do with like you bake your own muffins. <laughs> um, come, come and sit here while children are running around, and hopefully somebody takes a turn watching them because no husband's watching them. So, like I mentioned earlier, I was very heavily involved with the women's ministry at my old church, well, the first church that I went to. And coming to Redeemer, there wasn't really a women's ministry, but there were events, and so. Like the first couple of months I was at Redeemer, they started with a Galatian study, like a Bible study that I went to. There was like table leads and you sat at the same table essentially each time. And I guess the the point of that was to kind of get to know people at your table and talk to them. And hopefully like friendship kind of blossomed out of that and all those things. And then there was like an occasional women's, all women's worship night, I'd say like, like once a year, sometimes twice a year. And at the time, there were two women's, I guess, women's ministers, one for our Midtown location, one for our Johnson County location. Women's minister at our Midtown location, I know she was part-time. I'm not sure if the women's minister at our Johnson County location, if she was full-time, I, I want to say she was part-time as well. I noticed a pattern or a trend of, okay, like we're having these you know, Bible studies, and I'm not saying that's not great because, you know, the Galatian study, like, I, I really liked it. And worship nights are fine. I mean, these are these things aren't, like, bad inherently or anything like that. What else is happening? Like, what else are we, what else is being done like, to reach the women of our body? And when I say women of our body, I mean the women that aren't seen, the women who don't fit into what this archetype of a redeemer woman is because I didn't I at the time I was single mean unmarried like my husband and I were dating and I was 31 I did not relate to the women who were like older than me or like my age who had been married for like seven years and had like three kids I didn't relate to that I didn't that wasn't my experience I was still like a fairly new Christian also. I only been a Christian for like a year and a half at that time. And so like I was desperate for a community of women that I could be a part of, you know, that really got me, who I really wanted to, you know, do life with, which is kind of like a, you know, a buzzword too in itself. And I didn't care if they were married or single or had kids or were divorced. Like I didn't care. Like I just wanted, I wanted to see women who were on the margins because there was a certain kind of woman who got to lead and got to be, and that was seen um, and that was propped up. These women didn't look like me like at all in terms of like, there were no black women who were, or any women of color in general who were leading these types of things. And also like there wasn't this other perspective of like, Hey, like I'm 31. I am unmarried. I do not have any children. I am a new Christian. 
Like I have, my perspective is different. My experiences are different, which is fine. And it shows other women who may be in the same scenario, whether, you know, they're widowed or divorced or single mothers or not, or whatever the case may be, that, hey, like I can be here and be myself and be comfortable. And, you know, people aren't going to socially shun me, which is kind of what it came down to. And when I brought this to the women's minister at Midtown, she basically told me, well, we're just focusing on like equipping and empowering, which is another Redeemer buzzword, the women's ministry, equipping and empowering women. We're not looking to have any sort of events outside of like women's nights or women's Bible studies or like, you know, studies through the Bible or worship nights. People are just going to kind of organically become friends. That's what small groups are for, things like that. We are empowering you to do the dishes and not be a millstone. (laughs) We are equipping you to be a stay-at-home mother um, of 12 children. Okay, (laughs) I I, I guess. Um, Because I I brought that up because I have a a heart for single women. Because I was a single woman. I was a single woman over 30 in the church which does, which were rare. <laughs> I was just like, hey, like, I want to get like single women like together, even though the t- like we're kind of fast forwarding here, moving up, you know, we'll probably, we'll get to like the members meeting, which kind of sparked a lot of things. But, you know, at the time I was engaged, I'm like, hey, like I want to bring together again, like women on the margins, women who aren't, seen and women who don't get to be seen or get to share their stories god still cares about you if you're 31 and single if you're 27 and single like he still cares like you can still be a part of this community of like you know this community of believers and still have purpose and meaning and personhood if you're single or or whatever your demographic looks like. Just because Redeemer publicly props up one type of woman does not mean it's okay. Does not mean that God has forgotten about you. Like he sees us, he affirms us, even if Redeemer doesn't. So, which I mean, all of those things are like good things, right? They're good things for us to do and good things for the church to offer. And to be met with like almost like a, I guess, a dismissal, like a sudden dismissal. But also it was almost like you're not, even in that scenario, it's almost like you're being told you're still not in the the right place, right? Like you don't really belong here if you don't fit what we want to do. It's just devastating. I loved your story. I mean, I didn't, your story is heartbreaking, but I loved how you wrote your story. And when reading it, you had a sentence there where you said, Uh, explaining how and why my experience as a woman, especially a woman of color, was not the same as my white counterparts. You were exhausted, right? You were exhausted from doing this. What was that like? I mean, I know you had a season where you were like, I'm just exhausted. I'm tired of explaining myself. What what was that like for you? To be honest, uh, there was like a year and a half, almost two years, where I was angry all the time. Whenever I remember like driving home, just like not yelling at my husband, but you know, like you're yelling at a situation and just being so angry of like, oh, they don't get it. And this is so frustrating, but also not having the energy to explain to someone why I should like just exist, why my existence matters and why my existence matters to God. And because I am made in the image of God, my existence should matter to you, a person who is also made in the image of God. I was angry and I was bitter for a long time. And there was a point to where I was like, nope, I'm out. (laughs) I'm not trying anymore. I kind of accepted that, hey, you know, student ministry is just going to be where I'm going to stay and be planted because there are women who were allowed to to be seen and to be on stage 
you know, allowed to teach, allowed to to be to kind of operate within their gifts that God like had given them like freely. Um, We were still having discussions and we were bringing those discussions to like our larger student body context. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to focus on that and the rest of it be damned because I'm not, if I have another lunch meeting with someone who's just going to sit here and listen to me and affirm what I'm saying, I'm literally going to punch someone in the face. I'm going to scream because, okay, you're listening to me. You're hearing what I'm saying, but there's zero action. There's zero like follow-up. It's like, hey, let's have lunch. I feel like I'm being patronized. And I feel like this is just like a formality to you. Like you're going to sit here, you're going to listen to me, or you're going to read my email and be like, oh, I just love your heart for our women. Like, I just love, you know, your passion for, like, then what the fuck else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it shows. Like, they don't actually, they don't love that. And, you know, we actually can relate this back to all sorts of stories of abuse. And when someone's telling a church leader or someone in their life, like, I experienced this. And they're like, oh, it sounds like that really hurt you. Duh. <laughs> You're like, what? Yes, that hurt me. This is serious. And like a normal response is like, Get in the car. We're going to go burn it down. Like, we're not going to sit here and we're not going to wait until these little baby steps happen. Any of that stuff. We're done with it. This is unacceptable. We're drawing a line now. Yeah. Well, I got partnered with you. Let's roll. Yep. That's the appropriate response. And you were not getting that because they didn't actually care. They maybe thought they did. But if you care about something and someone's looking you in the eye and expressing that their personhood is being attacked by your church, not valued, not cared for. And it's not like you guys were exactly in like a comfy, cozy time in the greater scheme of the American church or American culture. It's like you just don't care if you cared. You were literally you, we ride a dog. Like let's go towards the like, end, of course. You know, I always have like my pocket of, of girlfriends who are like, whenever you're ready to burn it down, <laughs> I will burn it down with you. <laughs> like get, get me, me a match. match. And yes. I think we all kind of lived off of that for a long time. She's like, okay, like we're commiserating. We're able to kind of, you know, like vent to each other and it's a cathartic experience. But at a certain point, which, you know, was kind of towards the end of our time at Redeemer. <clears throat> You're like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't sit idly by. And I, I really had to pray to the Lord. I'm like, I, I can't do this, but I know that this is important. And it's not just about me, because if this institution, if this place is going to continue to operate there could be potentially like other black women and other women of color and people of color that come here. And if the system doesn't change, they're going, it's going to be a cycle, like a revolving door of people of color who come in, who see what's what, see the writing on the wall. It's like, I'm not safe here and then leave. And it's just going to continue that way. Unless the culture changes, the culture has to change in order for there to be any sort of real movement but okay we'll get to that that's kind of later on but you know i'm kind of jumping ahead but no but that is important because that i think the church is producing the type of culture that it it's going to produce because again those pastors are not modeling anything they're not uncentering themselves or or unpositioning themselves right to listen and be and have a heart that hears and has a heart that says, I don't have the answers. I don't even know what to do because my worldview is limited because I'm a white person. The reality is, is that because they didn't do that, the culture's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's not safe. It's not going to move forward. It isn't a place of multicultural normativity. It's just a white church. I mean, honestly. And so, I mean, honestly, like, I don't know how you stayed there as long as you did. And I think that 
the fact that you even thought that, like, I I have to stay to help others speaks more about your character and heart um, and who you are as a person, because that is a huge sacrifice that you did to be in a situation where you're trying to put others first. But also it had to be incredibly traumatic and harmful to your soul. And, you know, that's devastating. And it should devastate all of us. So... Anything else you want to share on that topic, Rachel, before we go to the members meeting? I know this isn't something that's unique just to particularly like black women in the Christian church and and then in this realm, in the circle. I know that as black women, we carry the brunt of that like every day, like navigating through the world that doesn't acknowledge, want to acknowledge our existence or affirm it and it's just disappointing that the church is the one place where you think oh yeah these are people who know that I'm also an image bearer because of that should treat me as such don't is disheartening and disappointing and it's like yeah the church has a lot of work to do I think the western church the American church but for white people who are listening like you have a lot of work to do too that's going to be hard and you're going to be uncomfortable and you're probably not going to understand and you're probably going to, you know, you're going to need to unpack a lot of things and check your own privilege and process your own, you know, biases. But it's good work. It's hard work. But just imagine like what it is like living as a person of color in these mostly white contexts in an Acts 29 church. <laughs> Just just multiply that by like a thousand and it's a tip. It's a drop in the bucket of what a lot of us experience like in these environments. Please stick around for episode two of Rachel's Story. Thank you for listening. And for Jonna Harris, I'm Jay Coyle. And this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Mm-hmm.